Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever forgotten to bring their binoculars on a trip that was specifically about looking at tiny creatures in a far-off treetop. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about what is possibly the most iconic butterfly in the world. In this episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Natalie Johnston about monarch butterflies, including why they're orange, the plants they rely on, the difference between a chrysalis and a cocoon, how far monarchs travel, why they cluster together in the thousands during the winter, historical accounts of air that was alive with butterflies, how to design a monarch sanctuary, the best time of year to see monarchs, how many paperclips it would take to pull down a tree, multi-generational migration, places in the world where monarchs can be found, their endangered status, how you can help the monarchs and a bunch of other pollinators at the same time, and a little about what these butterflies have come to symbolize today. Really quick before we dive into all of that, this is the second episode in season two. I've already recorded most of the interviews for this season, which is going to be loaded with so many good topics like dark desert skies, native plants, urban nature, amphibians, the La Brea tar pits, and the height of the last ice age in California, and so much more. If you're interested in the natural world, especially here in California, make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified about new episodes as soon as they release. If you're in Apple Podcasts, you can do that by hitting the little plus sign at the top right-hand corner of your screen. It should look like a little check mark if you've already subscribed. And if you're enjoying the podcast and want access to things like video and audio extras, behind the scenes updates, and AMAs, I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it if you considered becoming a patron by donating as little as $4 a month to the show. That helps me so much as an independent podcaster, and it covers things like audio equipment, gas money to get me to interviews, the necessary subscriptions for making the show. Just last week, I hosted my first Zoom AMA on Patreon. It was so fun, and I feel so fortunate to be supported by such wonderful, knowledgeable, generous, fun human beings. If you want to be one of them, you can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's, and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want to keep up with me on social media, you can find me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram and TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. One last thing before we get to the episode. If you've listened to the end of each episode, I always say something either embarrassing or funny or in some way interesting from my week. I'll do that today, but then keep listening until the very end to hear some very minor drama that unfolded as Natalie and I recorded this episode, which gives some insight into what it can be like recording in the field. But now let's get to the episode. Natalie Johnston got her bachelor's degree in biological sciences from UC Davis in 2011, and she spent the past 10 years working for nonprofits and conservation organizations in and around Pacific Grove. She's a certified California naturalist and now the community science coordinator and resident monarch person for the Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History. So without further ado, let's hear from Natalie Johnston about monarch butterflies on Golden State Naturalist. in this single tree right here. Oh, so it was 1,500 on the right, plus 1,100 on the left, plus another uh, couple hundred, so maybe about 3,000 monarchs 3, in this one tree here. In this one tree. 
Natalie and I met up at the Monarch Sanctuary in Pacific Grove on an afternoon at the end of October. On the day we met, the Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History counted 11,213 monarchs in the small sanctuary. And even though there were so many of them in the Monterey Pine Natalie and I were standing beneath, I saw several people walk right up to the tree without noticing that they were there. When they're clustered, they can be hard to see because with their wings folded, they lose that bright orange vibrancy oh. and they resemble more of a pale gray color. So some people will come through the sanctuary and at first they don't see any monarchs. They're like, what's going on? I uh -huh. thought they were supposed to be here. But then once they see one with mm, the triangle mm -hmm. shape and you can still see the black stripes along their mm -hmm. wings, the veins, once you see them, then suddenly you start seeing them everywhere. Yeah, what's your tip for somebody? Do you have any tips for somebody who's just seen them for the first time and doesn't really know what to look for? Like, how do you get your monarch eyes on? I recommend a pair of binoculars is handy. Uh-huh. Oh my God, the shame. I also recommend looking out for small, what look like small triangular pine cones oh. or what may look like triangular folded leaves. Some mm -hmm. of my uh, volunteer docents will call them like gray potato chips. <laughs> yeah, I can but see that. But just look out for those tiny triangles. And when we first get here to count them, we'll first do a scan, like looking over every single uh -huh. tree and then you find them and then suddenly they're everywhere. And also if you want to see them in flight, then come when the weather is a bit warmer, mm -hmm. like maybe around over 55 degrees. Mm -hmm. And there's also going to be down towards the lower end of the trail, a bed of nectar plants, which are very popular for them to feed off mm -hmm. of. So that's a good place for people to see the monarchs as well. Nice. And so here, when they're clustering like this in the trees, they're just resting, is that the idea? Exactly. For the monarchs, their idea is just to have a safe space to stay throughout the winter before they head back to their homes, which for this population will be Oregon, Washington, Idaho mm. or so. Once their weather start getting warm in uh, around the springtime, that's when they'll head back north. Mm. So just hunker down, stay safe, shelter from the elements, and of course, you know, get some food while you're here. So basically, monarchs are like well-to-do retirees who go south for the winter, except they have to do this to survive. Also, the whole round-trip journey spans multiple generations, which Natalie and I will talk more about later. Do you see that light green substance draping from the branches yeah. like a net? Yeah, that's lace lichen, the fungus algae symbiosis. And monarchs are so lightweight, they only weigh about half the size of a paperclip or half of Whoa. a dollar bill. And so they'll just cling to that lace lichen like a net, and it's pretty great to watch. Wow, are some of them doing that right now? Some of them are, and some of them are even clinging to each other because they are lightweight enough to do that. Oh or just hanging on to a pine needle or the branch itself. One of the things I've heard about monarchs is, and I don't know if this has ever happened here, hmm. but is that sometimes there have been cases where so many have been on a tree that they've pulled the tree over. Is that yes. true? It is true, but because this is an endangered species and their numbers have mm. been drastically declining, it has not happened in a while, at least not here. Mm -hmm. But yes, that has been known to happen. So. Yep. How many paper clips would that take? Oh, I have <laughs> no idea. Imagine the number of paper clips to pull a tree down. I feel like that could be a science experiment yeah, for that's, someone. That's a good math problem. Yeah. A group of kids or something. Okay, I realize there are a lot of variables in a problem like this, and probably a near infinite number of correct solutions, but it sounds like a fun thing to play around with. My next question is something that also involves a lot of variables. 
Okay, one thing I'm wondering about is what makes a good sanctuary? Like you've got all of these different types of trees and, and what kind of goes into planning an area like this? That's a really excellent question. One of the things is for them to have good protection from the elements. The temperate climate that's in the Pacific Grove and other parts of coastal California makes this a good spot for them to oh. winter. Then we have different trees that allow them both to get shelter from the elements. Three types of trees that we saw in the sanctuary that day were Monterey pines, Monterey cypress, and eucalyptus trees. And I know that there were others too, but those were three of the ones that Natalie specifically mentioned the monarchs overwintering in. Now, if you know native plants, you know that eucalyptus are not native plants. And the eucalyptus trees around the sanctuary were planted as a windbreak so that the butterflies would be able to find shelter more easily. I'm not here to get into the middle of a debate about whether or not eucalyptus trees, which are invasive in California, California should be planted to protect monarchs, which are endangered and a native species. So I am just going to kindly refer you to a Bay Nature article on this topic, which I'll link in the show notes. Monterey pines and Monterey cypress both have a pretty limited distribution, so it was pretty cool to see those growing in the sanctuary. But also give them access to sunlight so that they can warm up and then fly later on. It's a pretty good balance between access to sunlight, but also protection from the elements. Then, in addition to the different trees, there's also the nectar beds, these places where monarchs can feed from. They should mostly be resting during the winter, but it's still good for them to have a food source that is things that flower during the winter time. Mm. California's cool Mediterranean climate does mean that we have a good number of native flowering plants in here, and then this sanctuary supplements those native flowers with some non-native ones as well. But then, in addition to all of that, you also have the underbrush, the grasses and the shrubs. In case a monarch does fall down from its tree oh. onto the ground, it can climb a bush, a shrub, to get access to sunlight, be away from the ground until its wings can warm up, and then it can fly back up to one of those trees. Oh. Is it hard for them to take off if they're too cold? They cannot take off if they are too really? cold. That's a funny thing about monarchs. They are exothermic, that is, they are cold-blooded creatures. Mm -hmm. And while monarchs can walk around in a colder temperature, they can't really move their wings when mm. it gets to kind of around under 55 degrees Fahrenheit or so. Mm. So it only is above those temperatures that they can really fly. You might see monarchs just when it's getting to that time, seeing what looks like uh, like they're shivering. They're just moving their wings mm -hmm. back and forth, trying to get some warmth into there so that they can take off. Wow. And so it would be bad if they fell to the ground somewhere completely shaded because then they would never potentially be able to warm up. Precisely. And that's why they would then walk around, which they can still do, trying to find a shrub or a grass or something that can take them to someplace mm -hmm. where they can access sunlight. Mm -hmm. This vulnerability to the elements relates to the reason why monarchs cluster together in the thousands, like we mentioned earlier. I'll let Natalie explain a little bit more about that. If you have one monarch by itself, it's like a boat with a sail. The wind is just going to hit it. Yeah. But if you have a bunch of monarchs together, instead it's more like shingles on a roof mm. where the wind and the rain would more cascade down mm. on all of them, lessening the effect than one would have by itself. Which is probably why overall population numbers are also so important, right? Like yes. having a larger population allows them to congregate. That's true. Like that. 
And then monarchs can help be pollinators to help plants around as well. And they're just good for the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So yes, we track the population in California during the winter time because they are clustering, which means that they're all close together and not moving. So mm -hmm. that way we can get accurate numbers. After we spent some time admiring the butterflies in the trees above us, Natalie and I walked a little ways down the path and found a place to sit down for the full interview. Stick around to hear about milkweed, how different generations of monarchs live for different amounts of time, monarchs around the U.S. and the world, life cycles, monarch lookalikes, shifting baseline syndrome, monarch conservation, the toxicity of monarchs, clever corvids, raising butterflies in captivity, monarch myths, beginning journeys that we ourselves will never finish, and how we can help both monarchs and our extended family of creatures all around us. All of that in just a moment. And now onto the full interview. How did you get interested in being a naturalist and how did you get interested in monarchs in particular? Oh, thanks. I've always found the study of biology and animal ecology to be really interesting mm -hmm. because other things other sciences follow exact equations, mm -hmm. but biology is the science where you have so many different factors at once mm -hmm. that you start getting into trends, you start getting into probabilities. Mm -hmm. And I find that just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been with the marine ecology world for a while and all of the invertebrates that kind of dominate this planet. And they're so fascinating. They have such very different life cycles from us. And I feel like the monarch butterfly takes that just extreme life a step further. Mm. But then again, I've also grown up in this area. So mm -hmm. it was amazing growing up and just kind of taking Butterfly Town USA, Pacific Grove for granted yeah. that yes, monarch butterflies. Monarch butterflies are so iconic that they are generally the default butterfly emoji on your phone. And oh yet gosh. they're so different from all other butterflies. Yeah. They are larger, they live longer, they have a different flight pattern, they migrate. Uh -huh. And so monarch butterflies, I think, are the exception that makes the rule. Mm, because they are so distinct, they become iconic. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of maybe even make incorrect inferences about other butterflies <laughs> based on based on what we know about monarchs. Kind of like the great white shark. Oh, interesting. That though, makes sense. That, though that's where the similarity ends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> Speaking of their distinct life cycles, tell me about what their life cycle is. How does that work? As insects, uh, they have the larval phase the adult phase, and then the transformation phase. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a general throughout insects. Mm -hmm. So for the monarchs, they ha have the egg, which is laid on the underside of a milkweed leaf. Generally, if conditions are good, one egg per leaf. Oh. Because those caterpillars have a lot of eating to do. They're hungry little guys. They huh? are very hungry caterpillars, right. yes. Oh my gosh. In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. Yes. <laughs> And so when they hatch, that's what they do. The caterpillars eat uh -huh. and they are eating the milkweed. And milkweed is toxic. Milkweed is really like, it has a toxic sap. It's got hairs on the underside to detract from mammal predators. Like mm. milkweed is doing everything, in my opinion, it can in order to not be eaten. Mm. But the monarch caterpillars, instead of being affected 
overly by this toxin incorporate that toxin into their bodies. Mm. So anything that tries to eat them suffers as though eating the milkweed itself. They're like, I see you milkweed. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna take advantage of that. Yes. All right. And that's where you get the bright, beautiful colors. As a caterpillar, they have these gorgeous, like white and yellow and black bands on uh -huh. them. Okay, have you ever heard that in nature, bright colors are like a warning? Well, this is a real thing and it's called aposematism. This is according to sciencedirect.com. Greek apo is away and somatic is sign. So it's like a sign saying, go away. It goes on to say, aposematism is the use of warning coloration to inform potential predators that an animal is poisonous, venomous, or otherwise dangerous. Oftentimes, orange or red patterns may be warnings, but do not assume that red is always a warning. So the monarch's bright coloration lets other animals know, hey, don't eat me. It's not going to be a good day for you. And they continue to eat, they molt like five times. Then they develop their chrysalis. So the butterfly version of a cocoon where they shed their exoskeleton. Okay, so I always just thought that the word chrysalis was the way that smart people say cocoon, but I was wrong. And I probably had some very not smart looking moments because they are two different things. So according to monarchjointventure.org, cocoons are specific to moths, while chrysalises are formed by butterflies. Moths spin silk around themselves and molt inside the silk casing. This provides extra warmth and protection from the surrounding environment. You can usually find cocoons attached to the side of something or buried underground or in leaf litter. Chrysalises, on the other hand, are not silk. Butterflies molt into a chrysalis, which is a hard exoskeleton covering that protects the developing butterfly beneath. So the chrysalis is actually part of the animal. It's this exoskeleton. Chrysalises are typically found hanging from something. For example, monarchs spin a small silk button from which to hang upside down before molting from head to abdomen. Inside this beautiful little chrysalis, their entire body dissolves and reforms around like kind of a central structure. So when it dissolves, what's happening? What is inside the chrysalis? Is like butterfly soup? Is yes. it like, it's just liquid? Yeah, well, almost. Inside the caterpillar body, there's kind of a, a proto-adult structure. Whoa. There was one scientist, I forgot his name, who I think about 10 years ago took MRIs of... Whoa or x-rays, or who took pictures of the monarch chrysalis, and he could see that there was the development of like a structure for everything to form around. Whoa. So yes, there's like, it all dissolves, but it's reforming around the central structure. Wild. It is pretty wild. The person who did this research is named Dr. Richard Stringer. I found an article about this from about 10 years ago, and this is a crazy story because on his way with the chrysalises in his car to Duke University to do these MRIs, he stopped at a gas station and his car was stolen along with his computer and all of his research notes. But did Dr. Stringer let that small setback stop him? No, he's a man of science and he found somebody in the area who had live chrysalises and he replaced his and he scanned those ones instead. And I will share this article about it from evolutionnews.org in the show notes so that you can learn more about it. And once it's an adult, like it's just out to make the next generation. It's not going to develop any new cells. So anything that happens to it, not going to heal. I didn't know this and now I'm a little bit sad. But it's not a big deal because monarchs don't live that long as adults anyway, right? Well, actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The monarch butterfly has a 
multi-generational migration. Mm -hmm. And not all generations are the same. Mm -hmm. Most monarch butterflies, once they're adults, they live like eh, between two to five weeks, find a mate, lay eggs on, the milkweed cycle continues. But when the migration happens, then it's different because once the temperature drops a little bit, the days start to shorten, then suddenly you get what's known as the super generation. Mm. So we're back up Oregon, Washington, Idaho. We're in the northern range. Mm -hmm. But now the temperatures are starting to get a bit colder. The days are starting to get shorter. And now hatches a new generation. This new generation is focused on migrating and clustering. Huh. So one generation, instead of living as adults a normal like two to five weeks, Instead, this generation is going to live six to nine months. Whoa! Really, the super generation. That's not just like a little bit longer. That's like <laughs> many times the length. Yes, and that's what we're seeing here. Oh my goodness. And then around mid-February or so, our super generation is going to think about the next generation. They'll move inland, and then the generation that happens from there, maybe like in February, March or so, once again gets back to that total six to eight week lifespan, which it's about two weeks as a caterpillar. And then, so that makes it like three to five weeks as an adult. So it gets back to that normal generation and then it's different generations will continue that journey back up north. Wow. The, the migration that leaves here to head back to the Northern ground, each one of those generations will pick up from the previous one. Wow. So very different from the single generation that comes down in the winter and then hangs out the entire winter. So the journey south is like a marathon with each individual butterfly living a super long time and making it all the way from their northern range down to the central coast of California. But the journey north is completely different because the journey north is like a relay race where butterfly generations are basically passing the baton and only living for a few weeks at a time. So the butterflies that are going north live significantly shorter than the butterflies from the super generation that headed south. One quick note, we're focusing on the butterflies that overwinter on the central coast of California because that's where we were when we had this conversation. There's also a population that overwinters in San Diego, and it looks from the maps that I've seen like those guys spend their warmer months in Nevada. Then we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but there's also an eastern population of monarchs, and they follow the same generational pattern where the super generation goes south and the regular generations go back north. Why do you think that one generation comes down, but multiple generations have to go back? Any idea, or is that known? If it is known, I don't know it. Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, migration is very costly. It's a discrepancy between the environment that they need to survive in versus the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. The resource in question is milkweed, mm. which happens inland and further up north. But during the wintertime, it's too cold for the monarchs to survive mm -hmm. where the milkweed is normally present. Mm -hmm. So does milkweed not grow here? It does not. What? No, not natively. That is wild. Yeah. Well, milkweed is not native to coastal California, but it is found further inland uh -huh. and then is found uh, further north. Oh my goodness. So they don't need milkweed. They're here to huddle throughout the winter. And then mm -hmm. when it, they do need the milkweed to have the next generation to migrate back north, they'll move to find mm -hmm. it. Because I always heard, oh, monarchs eat only milkweed. And, and that, is a, that is a misnomer, right? 
So I realize that I use the word misnomer incorrectly in this situation because a misnomer is an incorrect use of a name or a term, which means that misnomer in this situation was actually a misnomer. But you know what I meant. Anyway, proceed. Because it's the caterpillars that eat only milkweed, but the adults are just like nectar is, is nectar. Is exactly. that kind of the idea? Like yep. we just want our sugar water and we're mm -hmm. happy? I mean, milkweed makes great nectar, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, even in the northern area when they're not in coastal California, the monarch adults are eating nectar from a wide variety of plants. Okay. So if you are going to help the monarchs, mm -hmm. probably depends on where you live, right? That what you correct. should do. Sounds like if you're inland, if you're in California, milkweed's a great thing to plant, mm -hmm. but not the only thing you should plant. Yes. So what would you suggest if people want to help monarchs, what should they do? I think one thing that people can do is to plant native nectar plants, so long as it is pesticide free because mm. monarchs are still insects and are thus affected by pesticides. So be careful when mm. uh, searching for plants that way. When Natalie said this about pesticides, it triggered a memory of reading an article recently and I went and I found this. And University of Nevada, Reno has this article about how milkweed plants purchased at retail nurseries across the United States were contaminated with pesticides harmful to monarch caterpillars that rely on milkweed. So this was actually a study led by researchers at the University of Nevada, Reno. Every plant sampled was contaminated, even those that were labeled wildlife friendly. So I've heard some people suggest growing milkweed from seed to avoid this and just making sure not to spray pesticides around your yard or buying milkweed from smaller scale local native plant nurseries rather than big box nurseries. If you can find milkweed that is native to your area, mm -hmm. there's a website called calscape.org, which is really great at locating native plants and by zip code. Mm -hmm. That's a really good source. Helping with habitat restoration mm -hmm. is another really good one, mm -hmm. both on like different nonprofits that age in habitat restoration and also just, you know, on a legislative level mm -hmm. if your community and larger getting areas that are protected so mm -hmm. that nature can regrow. Right. Also, like all other creatures, monarchs are impacted by climate change. Mm. So continuing to do your part to lower your carbon footprint mm -hmm. is another great thing. The entire ecosystem is connected. So what you can do to help out our ecosystems will help out monarchs. And because they do have such a migration, no matter where you live, you can help out monarchs mm -hmm. because you are pretty much guaranteed to be along a monarch migration route. Wow. And that goes for pretty much anywhere in California. But what and about- And beyond. And beyond. Okay, so as I was gonna ask, so where are monarchs found in the world? It's fast. Well, okay, I can speak for the United States. I'm going to let Natalie tell you more about the North American monarchs, but really quick, I wanted to read a little bit from monarchjointventure.org to tell you about monarchs around the world. So they're native to North and South America, but spread throughout much of the world in the 1800s. They were first seen in Hawaii in the 1840s and spread throughout the South Pacific in the 1850s and 60s. In the early 1870s, the first monarchs were reported in Australia and New Zealand. Monarchs also inhabit Portugal and southern Spain along the Iberian Peninsula. And the Mediterranean habitat offers a suitable environment for monarch butterflies to proliferate. There's the Rocky Mountains. West of the Rocky Mountains is our population that California in uh, the winter and up Oregon, Washington and Idaho, Nevada areas in the northern range. 
Then east of the Rocky Mountains, you have the Eastern monarch population. Mm. And those are the ones that famously migrate down to Mexico. Monarch's migration to Mexico is interesting from both a natural and cultural perspective. According to PBS, every winter up to a billion monarch butterflies overwinter in fir forests deep in central Mexico's mountains. For thousands of years, the people living in Mexico's mountains have believed these butterflies are the spirits of the dead. Their arrival coincided with Mexico's most spectacular festival, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. And this episode's coming out the day after Day of the Dead ended, so just barely missed it. And so they go across all over the United States as their northern range, even places that seem like the southern United States, like, you know, Texas, New Mexico, Mm -hmm. and further east, that's still part of their northern range to go south to Mexico. According to the World Wildlife Fund, those eastern monarch butterflies can travel up to 2,500 miles from Canada and the northern United States all the way down to Mexico. And according to California State Parks, some of our population flies over a thousand miles to get where they're going. So nowhere near as far as the eastern population, but still pretty dang impressive for an individual butterfly. There are a couple of non-migratory populations. Florida has a non-migratory population. Arizona has a non-migratory population. Arizona also has populations that will go down to Mexico and populations that will go to California. So they've done some good tagging studies in Arizona. That's so interesting, I bet. You don't know what you're going to get if you catch one in Arizona, huh? Yeah, very, really very interesting. interesting studies. Okay, now this is kind of a weird question. Mm-hmm. What would happen if you took one of these butterflies and you like brought it to Mexico and you're like, you're overwintering here now? Would it pick up the migration of the Mexican population or the Eastern population, I should say, because it's also the United States on all the way up? Uh-huh. Um, don't know. Like, I mean, for one, the uh, city of Pacific Grove would like find you a thousand dollars for molesting a monarch. Yeah, don't but do beyond, it. We're not but saying theoretical. <laughs> theoretically, I don't know because there's the thing about the migration of back northward, where a single generation will go part way up the migration, mm-hmm. then the next generation picks it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that goes into questions of like associative behavior versus instinctive behavior Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure I can answer. What I can say is that last year, the monarchs began migrating back up northward. And so if we're having that view of they are instinctually going farther north along a programmed path as it were, then they would just continue to go back north. But then Mm -hmm. the temperature dropped Mm -hmm. and we're like, oh no, these monarchs are going to freeze. But then suddenly there were a whole bunch of monarchs back in Pacific Grove. None of these monarchs were tagged, but it was an indication that the monarchs saw that the weather was bad and turned back around to a safer environment. Mm -hmm. So with that sort of gauging the weather and being able to do things, then probably that monarch would migrate back up with the others. Okay, now would be a great time to take out a pen and paper or your notes app or anywhere that you can write something down because you're going to hear some cool places where you can see some monarchs. And I highly recommend visiting them if that's at all possible for you. Would you say, because I know the central coast is a hot spot for monarchs, and we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Is Pacific Grove particularly fantastic or is it more just central coast in general and maybe there's a few spots 
Pacific Grove is one of the larger overwintering sites. Natural Ridges up in Santa Cruz mm -hmm. is another good one. Then there's a Pismo Beach Butterfly Grove. That one's another good one. So those are kind of the three largest overwintering sites. Okay. But they've been found in the Bay Area and Santa Barbara, so other places along the coast. Oh, interesting. Like I mentioned before, you can also see overwintering monarchs in San Diego, California, but I get the impression there aren't quite as many of them down there. I found a few different websites that mention different locations. One of them is Presidio Park in Old Town, San Diego. But like I said, I think there's a few other locations too, so definitely do some digging before any outings. And then apparently there's this Bay Area population. Yeah, I didn't realize they were Bay Area too. That's this cool. is I th a new development of a mm. non-migratory population that lives in the Bay Area. Whoa! Yeah. How recent is that? Last year. Are you serious? Well, that is fascinating. I mean, you know, we worry about these species with climate change, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, hopefully they can find a way to adapt and hang on, right, as a species, even in the, in the face of climate change, I guess. I think monarchs are very good ambassadors for animals that are impacted by humanity, both for worse and for better. When through development, pesticide use, essential habitat loss, we've seen their numbers just decline mm -hmm. so steeply. But I think within the past uh, year, there's been a lot of good efforts towards making favorable habitats, mm -hmm. both for monarchs and other animals on this planet. And I think that mm. monarchs can hopefully show how nature can bounce back mm -hmm. when people choose to take action to protect our planet. Yeah, it seems like when people heard about monarchs being in such sharp decline, they were like, okay, I'm planting milkweed. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna put all these nectar providing plants in my yard. Do you think that that's what made the difference or is it more big scale restoration projects or is it Both. all of, yeah, all of that combined? Yeah. Uh, all of those large-scale things would not happen if people were mm. not there to support it. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, in 2021, we saw a beautiful rebound of monarchs after the nothing of 2020. And yeah. What was enough, the count in 2020? Zero monarchs clustering in Pacific Grove and wow. uh, fewer than 2,000 across all of California. Ooh. But then in 2021... I just saw almost 3,000 on one tree. Yes! That's incredible. And so when we saw our first cluster last year of just barely over 1,300 mm -hmm. in the entire sanctuary, suddenly there was hope. Suddenly, like, yes. people were interested. And as the numbers continued to climb to nearly 250,000 across oh, all of California, amazing. I think people really saw monarchs as a symbol that life can go on mm. after 2020. Mm -hmm. And that sort of hope gave them the action. And that's when I started seeing people genuinely planting native milkweeds, reducing their pesticide use, and supporting taking the time to support within their local community and beyond things to help monarchs. That's so great. I love that people took that and ran with it because I think that that's what we need. And if you, like you said, with everything being connected, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you're helping the monarchs, you're probably also helping the birds in your yard. Yes. And you're probably also helping the other invertebrates in your yard exactly. that are then feeding into the food web. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. When we're on the topic of milkweed. Milkweed. I had a listener question about milkweed. Anne wants to know what to say to friends who still plant tropical milkweed, who say that monarchs choose it over natives, which may anecdotally be true, but not the best for long-term health of the population. What does the research say? 
one thing that you can do if they want to keep that tropical milkweed in their garden is to trim it back to the ground mm. twice a year in the winter and in the fall. Mm. The thing that makes tropical milkweed detrimental to monarchs is that it builds up a parasite. Oh. A parasite that is naturally found on milkweed species, mm. but most milkweed species are perennial. They die back in uh, the winter. Okay. And when it doesn't die back in the winter, like tropical milkweed does, the parasite just accumulates to deadly levels. Oh. And so you'll see people who like love the monarchs and are caring for these chrysalises, for these caterpillars, and they see the chrysalises just turn into brown. They come out with their wings deformed oh. and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So trim that milkweed back in the fall, in the winter, so that you don't get those deadly levels of parasites. So at the same times of year that the native milkweed would be dying back, you're just cutting back the tropical milkweed. Yes, well phrased. Okay, you're helping mimic the natural cycle that would preclude those parasites from thriving. Yes, exactly. Okay, are they microscopic parasites or can you see them? They are microscopic. Okay. They are little protozoans, so relatives of oh, the wow. amoebas. So you wouldn't know if your plant had them? No. So you got to just cut it back. You've got to just cut it back. You can't be like, oh, this one doesn't have it because I don't see mm -hmm. them. Okay. Just exactly. Back, people. Okay, cool. And is there any other concern with the tropical milkweed or is that the big one? That's the big one. Okay. So if you like the tropical milkweed, you think they like it, maybe it's not that bad. Just take care of it and realize that you're going to have an extra chore to do in the mm -hmm. fall and winter. Yes. If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that I'm a really big fan of native plants, so I still would say, if at all possible, plant native milkweed. Because then, one, you don't have to do that extra garden chore. Two, if you ever move and the next person that moves in doesn't know they're supposed to do that garden chore, then it doesn't matter. And three, who knows if there's some other issue with non-native milkweed that just hasn't been fully explored or discovered yet. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. Okay, while we're talking about diseases, another listener, Tori had monarchs grace her home this year, which was really exciting. She planted some milkweed and they actually came and she was super excited. One chrysalis turned black, but then the monarch that came out of it seemed fine and flew away. So she had read that black chrysalis was like a sign of disease, mm -hmm. but then the, the butterfly seemed fine. Have you ever heard of something like that happening? More than the normal black that you see with their uh, abdomens, but like kind well, of a, I, I don't know. She had other ones that didn't, didn't look like that. Huh. So I don't know. I can't, I can't say. Yeah. Sometimes there's just an anomaly. Maybe it's just an anomaly. Maybe, maybe it did have, maybe there was that sign of OE of that, of that parasite, but it didn't get to the levels of where it deformed mm. the monarch wings. I is that know. what normally, ha is that the OE? Is that what happens um, when it turns black usually? Yes, but I've also not had the chrysalis turn black or brown. Chrysalis is an entirely normal color, but you still see the deformation. So hard to say. Yes, I'm afraid I don't, I can't say specifically. It sounds complicated. Okay, we talked a lot about their migration. How the heck do they know where to go? Do we know how they know where to go? Or is that unknown to us still? There are different things that I have heard. I've heard that monarchs may be able to see polarized light, which would huh. help them migrate. I have not heard that they can sense the Earth's magnetic field, like mm. sea turtles and some species of whales and other cetaceans. So that's a good question. That's a very good question. 
I mean, it's one of those things I think where we constantly are underestimating animals. And oh, we're yes. always like, like your little pea brain couldn't possibly figure it out. And then they do it. The more that you study the natural world, you learn how much initiative all these little creatures have mm. watching how they interact. It's true. MonarchJointVenture.org has a big web page all about monarch migration, and it has a bunch of different theories about how they do this. The three theories that they focus on are sun compass, magnetic compass, and genetics. So I'll link that page in the show notes in case you want more details about those things. Okay, so for people who want to see monarchs, when are the best times of year to come to the California coast to see them? The peak season, they start arriving in October, mid-October, late October. The monarch population will reach a peak from November through January. Mm. During this time, that's when the monarchs will primarily be clustering. Mm -hmm. So that's when you really need to look out for those little uh, gray triangles. Mm -hmm. In February or so is when they'll start preparing to migrate north uh, and they'll be selecting for mates. So they are very active during that time. It always, for me, depends on what they want to see. Mm -hmm. We had a visitor earlier who wanted to see those giant clusters Mm -hmm. of them still. So yeah, November through January, great time for her. But like nobody should come in like July. No, but what's really great about July is that in the summertime, there are butterflies that mimic the patterns of monarchs. Yes. How can you tell them apart? One of the things is the flight pattern. Oh. Monarchs, they soar through the air. Uh You just see one just like an airplane just going straight ahead. Wow. Most insects, including other butterflies, they fly like houseflies, mm-hmm. erratically to, from, and all different directions mm-hmm. in order to avoid a predator's gaze. Mm-hmm. But monarchs are toxic. They don't need to avoid a predator's gaze. So they just get to be graceful. They get to be graceful. So uh, the flight pattern is one thing to look out for, is you see a, uh, something that looks uh, like a monarch is flying erratically, but is also smaller. Mm. None of the monarch mimics get to the size of a monarch. Mm -hmm. The red admiral, which has very large dark lines, the western lady and the painted lady found locally, which are so very similar to a monarch that Mm. it is very common to see all sorts of pictures in like news articles or other different things. You see the mimics mixed in with the footage. Oh, that's funny. It is kind of funny. They're very good at at mimicking those patterns. They've tricked us. They've Mm -hmm. tricked us pretty well. And so they're probably thinking, right? I don't know if thinking is the right word, but -hmm. their angle is kind of like, well, those guys are toxic. And so I'm going to look like that. So animals don't eat me and that's going to protect me, but I don't actually have to be toxic. That's exactly it. Wow. Quick side note, I know that I'm completely anthropomorphizing these animals and that this was actually a long evolutionary process and not just like a decision that they made one Tuesday. So just putting that in there. However, some animals like the scrub jays and the stellar jays know that not all things that look like monarchs are toxic. Mm. And also not all monarchs are equally toxic. What? It depends on what milkweed they eat and how toxic it actually is. So what you'll see sometimes is that you might see a monarch flying around with just a small little nibble taken out of its wing. Because a jay will take a bite, see how it feels after that bite, and if it is one of the mimics or a monarch that is not particularly toxic, consumes the whole thing. <gasps> Clever but if it corvids. Is, exactly. Then they just let it go. Those birds are so smart. They really are. 
So if you're not familiar, corvids are the crow family, and these birds are known for being extremely intelligent. I just found an article by Scientific American entitled, Western Scrub Jays Are Capable of Metacognition. And I feel like that just tells you everything you need to know. Okay, another listener question. Yes. Dan, who I'm married to, wants to know if there are other species of butterflies that migrate. Yes, there are. Worldwide, oh. there are other species of butterflies that migrate. The reason that we know so much about monarchs is because they are big and they are visible. Oh. Just in 2019, there was a species of damselfly that was known to also have a multi-generational migration. Whoa! Damselflies basically look like really petite, skinny little dragonflies. I suspect... Because traditional monarch tagging was done by like almost placing like a tiny little sticker on a mm. monarch wing. Yeah. And you can't really do that with your ordinary tiny insect. Right. I hope when we find a way to be able to track other insect species, we might find other epic migrations yeah. in the insect world. I think there's still a lot that we have to learn. That's a really great point. Yeah, and I think that there's probably that bias in science in general, right? Like, well, I mean, the if thing you can, can see it, see, yes. Yeah. And that's actually a very useful thing in science is that the thing that is easy to see, that is easy to track, is a representation of the ecosystem as a whole. Mm -hmm. There's a local shorebird that called a black oyster catcher that by studying its success, we can study how the ecosystem as a whole is mm -hmm. impacted. That's another community science program the museum helps out with. Nice! So. Love a community science program. That's fantastic. Okay, B wants to know People who are captive breeding monarchs, are they helping? Are they harming? Is it neutral? What's the situation with that? I know that in California, it is no longer legal to captive breed uh, monarch butterflies. There are some concerns that uh, monarch butterflies that have been raised in captivity may have like parasites that are passed mm. along. It is generally recommended that you instead do your part to try to create a monarch friendly habitat outdoors. Mm. The emergence process when the monarch goes from the chrysalis to the adult butterfly is pretty delicate. The monarch needs sufficient space to be able to effectively stretch and flap its wings. Mm -hmm. So the monarch butterflies do generally need a lot of special care. Mm -hmm. So it's generally encouraged to, instead of captive breeding, to try to create a local outdoor monarch friendly place. And if for some schools that do monarch rearing projects, replace it with a different butterfly species that is not known to be endangered, like painted lady butterflies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And then you're not harming the overall population in, in such mm -hmm. a way necessarily. And you still get to do the education with the butterflies. Yeah, yes. That makes sense. I mean, Tori, who planted milkweed for the first yes. time in her yard and then was like, mm monarchs aren't going to find this. And then they immediately did. Like, you know, yes. you don't know if they will or not, but you're giving them the opportunity at least, right? Exactly. And even if you don't find monarchs specifically, like milkweed has really great nectar. Bees love it as mm. well. And bees are essential for like most plant life. Right. Yeah. I wonder, do you know if there's any like native bees that have a relationship with, with milkweed? The conservation organization Xerxes has oh, yeah. this huge, beautiful publication, mm. like everything they know about milkweed altogether. And they Ooh. did list uh, native bee species with uh, relationships with milkweed. How cool. And I cannot remember that off the top of my head, but, but I, I remember resource. the publication. Yeah, yeah. Xerxes. Xerxes is a great resource. They do a lot for insects, right? They for insect conservation. They do. 
both the work that they do for insect conservation and just the resources they have for everybody, I highly recommend. So the Xerces Society, that's spelled X-E-R-C-E-S, go to their website, it's xerces.org, and they have a whole resources tab, and they have all kinds of great information and all kinds of wonderful stuff on there. And they even have a guide for what to plant to help monarchs and what kind of milkweed you should grow in your area. So check out that website. There's so much to explore and they do a ton for invertebrates. And invertebrates do a ton for us. So that seems right. When did they get listed as an endangered species? Was that this year? That was this year. Mm -hmm. In 2016, there was a petition to protect monarch butterflies under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Oh. But what came back was that while the species population qualified, mm -hmm. they should focus on species of higher priority. Oh. You see, monarchs are bugs, and there are so many animals that mm -hmm. need our protection. Yeah. That's where the 2021 rebound with people associating the monarchs can come back from 2020 and mm -hmm. so can I. At least that's what I'm guessing was in people's mm -hmm. minds. That's where that comes into play. Because in 2021 was really when monarchs started to enter the population's idea that this is something worth caring about. Mm -hmm. That even though this is a bug, this is something that is important to us. And everybody and people started passing legislation like banning tropical milkweed in mm -hmm. counties in Los Angeles. California had previously said that insects could not go on their Endangered Species Act, but there was a loophole classifying mm. invertebrates under the fish category. I heard that fish, about bees. Yep, because fish includes <laughs> shellfish. Shellfish equals invertebrates, oh, so invertebrates thus equal all invertebrates, <laughs> including not underwater invertebrates. Sometimes you just got to be crafty. Exactly. You know? And so from there, insects can qualify under California's Endangered Species Act. Then the IUCN, they said that the monarch migratory population qualifies as endangered. The IUCN's listing does not put monarch butterflies under the protection of the Endangered Species Act. Oh. Also, it's not that monarchs are suddenly more in trouble than they ever were. The monarch population, ever since it has been tracked since 1997, the mm. Western population, the data has shown a decline. Mm. So we have been aware of a population in danger for a long time, mm -hmm. but now I feel like it's starting to get out into the world that monarch butterflies should be protected. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're seeing this come in, mm -hmm. that listing and everything else. Yeah. What are the historic numbers? So you said about 250,000 were seen mm -hmm. last year in California. How does that compare historically well, to like those earlier counts, right? You said it's been declining. Historically, it's thought that there were tens of millions across wow. California. So that's a far cry from a quarter of a million. Yes. And accounts from people in Pacific Grove, as late as the 1980s, mm -hmm showed things that we do not see today. Mm. Like a person would open their door and it would seem like their entire lawn would come into <gasps> the air at once because of all the monarchs that were in their yard. In the 80s? In the 80s. Them or earlier and people would have to literally sweep monarchs off of their doorstep because there were just so many monarchs on the ground. Whoa. There were reports of the air being almost like a fluttering veil in some places because the monarchs were just so dense in oh the air. Oh my goodness, that reminds me of like 
those reports of the Sacramento River being so thick with yes. salmon that you could walk across the river on the salmon's back? Yes. Wow, but that's like in the 80s, not like in the 1840s I mean, or 50s. I mean, can you think about it? By the 1980s, many of the factors that we're seeing today that contributed to the monarch's decline were already in place. Mm-hmm. Pacific Grove in those 1880s times was just a couple of houses scattered throughout mm-hmm. a dense forest. And even by the 1980s, it was a couple of patches of forest inside a mostly urban area. Yeah, sure. I was so thrown off by these accounts from the 1980s that when I was reviewing the audio from this interview, I emailed Natalie and I was like, did you mean the 1980s or did you mean the 1880s? And she said that she definitely meant the 1980s because she spoke firsthand with one of the volunteers at the sanctuary who experienced this in the 80s. So this is very much still in living memory. There's a guy, I forget what the term is that naturalists use about the memory of people. We always Shifting baseline syndrome? Shifting yes, baseline syndrome. I was just syndrome. thinking about that. Yep, yeah. Completely. We always think about like whatever a childhood is, is the baseline for the world was good. Mm-hmm. But we have to physically remind ourselves that, no, that was already a decline. Right. That these reports that people remember as the good old days were already not what they should be. Mm-hmm. So really trying to get people to push beyond back to what is healthy. Right. Even Absolutely. though it predates them. Restoring monarchs to these kinds of numbers is going to be a job. But Natalie brought up a great point. She said that monarchs are an excellent symbol for starting a job that you yourself are never going to get to finish. But it still matters that you started it. You can take the project part of the way and pass it on to somebody else who can take it farther. Any common myths about monarchs you want to bust? One of the common local myths is that all monarchs migrate down to Mexico. Oh. Whereas here, the ones that stay in California, they're not going to continue down to Mexico. This is their southern Mm -hmm. range. Mm -hmm. Another one of those common myths is that, yeah, milkweed is the only thing that monarchs eat, Mm -hmm. which is true for the caterpillars, but Mm -hmm. adults just need wide variety of nectar sources. I'm not sure if it's a myth, but remembering that monarchs are insects and so thus are affected by pesticides. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a good one. We do sort of think of them in their own category. Exactly. They they don't seem like insects. They seem... Special. More, yeah, more special somehow. And they are very special. Right. What do you wish people knew about monarchs? I think I wish that people would understand that no matter where they live, they can still help out monarch butterflies. Hmm. That there is always something that we can do that in order for the world to be that beautiful place with the tens of millions of monarchs, we can make that happen. That it isn't too late. Mm -hmm. That nature can recover when we choose to protect it, but that we first need people to choose to take action. Mm -hmm. And you know, this this friend of mine who had those monarchs in her yard, she lives in a a neighborhood. You know, it's not, she doesn't live in a national park, right? (laughs) And And it's that kind of action, right? It's taking a little section of your lawn and replacing mm-hmm. it with some milkweed or some or who nice... knows, maybe they would appreciate a tree or a bush sure. to be able to climb back from the ground. Give yourself a little piece of ecosystem if you can. Right. Or if you can't because you live in a very urban area, you know, help to support those local protected areas that are nearby you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are more of those than we give credit to, I think. I often. think so. Last question, mm-hmm. what about these butterflies still takes your breath away? 
the fact that they really are like living stained glass. Mm. Monarchs are so beautiful in the way that they fly into the air, the way they soar. The fact that they are the exception that makes the rule. Mm -hmm. The fact that they are so complicated, despite the fact that they weigh less than half of a dollar bill. The fact that they are being able to take initiative, that they choose different trees every single night. Mm -hmm. These tiny little creatures have a lot going for them. Mm -hmm. And it's really great because I started to study monarch butterflies. From there, I started to notice all the other butterfly species mm -hmm. that are around in this area. And getting a closer look just enriches the world so much. Like when you start to learn how to identify birds and then you can pick out the individual bird songs, the world just becomes so much more. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the butterfly and insect world is the same way. Right. With the birds and recognizing their songs, you know, it's like... I think that the more you know a place or different species that are around you, the more a place becomes familiar in the sense of family, right? It's yes. almost like then those species, it's like that's a friend or a family member of yours that you hear. You, I know your voice. Yeah, you want to protect your family. Right. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time and thank meeting you, me Michelle. out here. And this has been really nice. It has been a pleasure meeting you. Likewise. The more I learn about the natural world around me, the more I feel at home in it, and the more comfortable I feel in my own skin, which is not something that's ever come easily to me. But if everything around me has a place and a purpose, then maybe I do too. I'm very grateful to people like Natalie and organizations like the Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History for taking the time to teach me about things like monarchs and their beautiful and unique place in the world. I'm also grateful to you for listening and learning alongside me. If you've enjoyed this episode or others before it, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and sharing this episode with someone you think might enjoy it. Word of mouth is how this podcast is reaching new ears, and I'm so thankful to anyone who has shared it. Okay, I always put something interesting from my week at the end of the episode, and I here is the list of possibilities that I composed for you today. It's in shorthand, so I'm just going to read exactly what I wrote. Spent the drive composing poems in my head. Stopped by Steinbeck Cottage. Sunset at Asilomar. Put air in tires in dark. Peed at Trader Joe's. Okay. So those were my list of possible things to tell you about from my week. But then this morning, something happened where I just, I knew that I had to tell you about this, which is that I was driving my kids to school and I looked around in my car. I had a piece of toast and I was looking for it and I was looking all over the place and I couldn't find it. And then it dawned on me and I reached, I sort of sat up in my seat and I reached under my butt and my piece of toast was smashed into the back of my pants. And... That was really unfortunate. And I have to tell you, I had to throw those pants away. And also, toast does not taste as good if all of the butter has been absorbed by your pants. That's all. Okay, and then stick around for one more minute because after the music, you're going to hear some kind of funny audio clips. But that is all for the regular part of the episode here. And I can't wait to see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye.
All right. Okay, so for context, recording in the field is delightful, but not without its challenges. And the challenges of this particular episode is that the only place there was to sit that was away from a lot of people was really close to a road. So Natalie got really good. She was just, she was amazing. And she stopped so many times in the middle of her thought, waited for a car to go by, and then picked up exactly where she left off to continue on with what she was saying. I don't know how many of those I removed from the episode, but it was probably like 20. Here's an example of what the removed audio sounds like. Here comes another one. Three in a row. Make a wish. Yeah. I wish that cars would stop driving on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Ruder King rolled up and parked probably 20 feet from where we were sitting. Go. Oh, here comes the Ruder King. Oh, the Ruder King is back. Just what I was hoping for. Is the Ruder King going to the sanctuary? Because yeah. our like one toilet is working great. Oh. Interesting. Maybe he just wants to look at butterflies, in which case yeah, we welcome absolutely. you, my dude. Yeah. Come on down. Come on over for your lunch break or something. Yeah, that's great. That's actually, that's a fantastic way to spend your lunch break if you live here. So we got back into a conversation and then what can only be described as double duty Rudy showed up. One who can see polarized light would be able to tell based on, for them, well, the color of the sky. Double Ruder King. <laughs> um, update on the ground, everybody. We're leaving this part Dude, in because this is just crazy. Uh, a Ruder King truck had come through plumbing and sewer <laughs> repair monterey and salinas okay they had come through and parked and now the second rooter king has arrived and there must be a real big problem this yeah not one but two rooter kings i mean i guess it makes sense you know the monarchy is here to see the monarchs ah true but are they yeah. dueling for the throne and what throne what kind of throne is it? <laughs> <laughs> the best throne <laughs> the porcelain throne <laughs> You know, I bet that probably is where they come. Like in neutral. That's, the plot thickens. I don't. I'm very curious about this whole situation. I mean, not curious enough to want to find out, really. Because if there's two plumbers involved, you probably don't want to find out. In the kingdom of kings, the monarch <laughs> sanctuary. Okay, what were we talking about? Uh, how do monarchs know where they are going Thank in their you. migration? Polarized light you were talking about. I think that's... You had mentioned that. We never did find out why the Ruder King was there that day at some unfortunate house across the way, but I wanted to leave that in there because I wanted you to know just how much you should appreciate Natalie. That's all. And the song you heard a minute ago is called Ida Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes. See you next time.